add my welcome. Hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. I want to welcome any visitors that are here today. We have visitors in our home. So some of you may have met Bobby and Cheryl Beer. That's Kelly's parents. Uh, they've tuned into our service frequently early on in the pandemic, so they may be more familiar with us than we are with them. But I thought I might um, give a glimpse into my relationship with them. I shared this at the Thanksgiving house to house with a few of you, but Bobby and Cheryl were missionaries for many, many years in the Balkans. And so I'd met the rest of Kelly's family and had not met them until um, September of 97. I met them for the first time in person. And in fact, one of the first things that I did was go out to dinner uh, to Outback Steakhouse with her dad with the um, intent to ask for his blessing on asking for his daughter's hand in marriage. Um, and I thought, I'm going to take this opportunity to uh, be funny. <laughs> it was a risky move, but as I sit, stood there over this Australian-themed steak dinner, I said, no matter how many times I do this, it never gets any easier, but may I have your daughter's hand in marriage. could have gone one way or the other, but it, it went well. He, he, he laughed, he gave his blessing, and we are thankful to have them here today. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Uh, we're going to read, and then I'm going to pray, because no matter how many times I preach, I still get nervous. <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good gift of your word for the truth that it reveals about you, for the truth that it reveals about us. Father, help me to get out of your way today. May any errors are mine, for your word is inerrant. It's infallible. Father, may you be glorified. May we be formed by this word, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In uh, reading this fairly familiar passage this summer, I was struck anew by something that Jesus is saying here, and I want to spend time this morning really looking at what's being said in this passage, what are some examples from scripture that illustrate this, and what this ultimately means for us today. So what, what is happening right here? Uh, when, when, when Will was about seven years old, we were... Um, eating a dinner with friends, and we were enjoying chips and salsa as an appetizer, and we were talking about who could handle the most spice, who liked spice, and Will, as a seven-year-old, between bites of chips and salsa, proudly declared, I'm a spicy lover. <laughs> now, without context, that's a dangerous statement to make, whether you're seven or no matter how old you are. Without the context, you can draw a completely wrong conclusion about Will, uh, a wrong conclusion about his parents. But with the importance of knowing that what we are eating and the context and all, it makes sense. So context 
what's being said, where it's being said, all that's really important, that's true here. The context here is that Jesus in the, is in the last week of his life, two days before he's to be crucified. And he's taking questions from the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they're hoping to trip him up. They're hoping to entangle him in his own words, to discredit him somehow. And the reason is, ultimately, they want, they want him gone. They want him dead. They want him out of the picture. Plain and simple, they are jealous. They are angry because he has disrupted their lives in a way that no one could imagine. Just the day before, he had, Jesus had cleared the temple of the money lenders, the sellers of goods, hurting them financially. They, they got a piece of that action. He had exposed them theologically, calling them spiritual frauds, calling them hypocrites, blind guides. And he's damaged them reputationally. As Jesus entered in this week, triumphantly, the people called out to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, proclaimed him the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And we know that immediately following this question and answer session in chapter 22, in chapter 23, Jesus proceeds to pronounce seven woes upon these Pharisees, calling them hypocrites over and over and over again. They want Jesus dead. His popularity, his life, Jesus's life has threatened their standing, their power, their finances, their reputation, their theology, their way of life. But they know if they do something to Jesus, the crowd will turn on them. So they have to use other ways to try to expose him and convince the people and ultimately the Roman authorities to take action upon him. So here we have this present passage where question after question has come and now a lawyer approaches Jesus and asks this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus' response, as we just read, the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We heard Andrew read this at the beginning. It's it's a very familiar passage to the people of Israel. It's the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But then he goes further. He goes on to say that is the first and great commandment, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, a familiar verse to the people of Israel coming from the book of Leviticus. So what's the great commandment? First and greatest, love the Lord your God with all you got. But the second is like it, just as essential, but second in priority, love your neighbor as yourself. But don't miss, and this is what struck me this summer, but don't miss what he says last to really drive the point home. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's pretty remarkable if we stop to think about it. This is the scripture that God's people had at this time. And Jesus is saying, all of God's word hangs on this. It all depends upon this. This is the very center of it all, that all scripture depends. For those of you new to our church, Pastor Dennis, when he wraps up his sermon, always says, what's the big takeaway? Well, here Jesus gives the big takeaway for scripture. What's most important, more important than anything else? Love God, love neighbor. What's also pretty amazing to think about here is that this is Jesus, the incarnate word of God, effectively the word made flesh, and he has just summed up himself with these two commands. This is exactly why he came. 
not only to tell us this, but to show us this in his life from birth to death. It's what we celebrated yesterday. Jesus loved God and loved neighbor through his ultimate obedience in coming here, identifying with us, identifying with our frailty, entering into the world and living the life we could not live and dying the death that we deserve. So imagine this again, two days before he is to die, standing there in the temple with sacrifices going on all around him as the Passover is approaching, Jesus knew that the final ultimate sacrifice had to be him. He knew the ultimate final sacrifice had to be both fitting and effective. Deity was necessary for an effective sacrifice. For we had sinned against an infinite God, an infinite debt had to be paid, and only an infinite God could be satisfied. Only he could offer himself as an infinitely valuable sacrifice. But the sacrifice also had to be fitting. Humanity was necessary for the fitting sacrifice because those he suffers for are human. And human blood was necessary, therefore he had to take on a human body. In this, the God-man accomplishes both. Paul captures this beautifully in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I read a story recently that paints a, a picture of this. It's by um, a Dr. Richard Seltzer. He's a professor of surgery at Yale University last century. He had just finished a surgery where there was a tumor in a young woman's cheek. And in order to remove the tumor, he had had to cut a nose. He describes it this way, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsied, clowning. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be thus from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously? The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says, it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that, her, that their kiss still works. 
Obviously, this young man was not a god. I don't know if this doctor was a Christian or not, but what stands out is that kind of love that's on display here is stunning. It is godlike. How selfless a love that persists in the midst of change, a love that contorted itself to meet her needs. And we know God himself made such an appearance as Jesus. He adjusted his appearance, his words, his touch to our human frames. We hear the Christmas story, we know that God does not run away from us. He always runs to us. To the contrary, instead of running from us, he has become one of us to heal and rescue us. It was out of love of God the Father and his neighbors that Jesus emptied himself of heavenly glory to take on human flesh, that Jesus contorted himself to fit our frame. It was out of love for the Father and neighbor that Jesus was perfectly obedient. It was love for God and neighbor that took him to the cross, that held him there, that allowed him to suffer humiliation, separation, and the imputation of all of our sins. So here in Matthew 22, the word himself sums up the word about himself and charges us to do the same and follow his example. After all, that's fundamentally what discipleship is, following Jesus, doing what he did, loving what he loved. It's ultimately relational. Discipleship at root is about both content and character, about the message as well as the messenger, more than cognitive transfer, but actual modeling. We were actually discipled through witnessing lives of others, choices that other people make, learning from their experience. It's why the church is so important. It's why intergenerational small groups and relationships remain essential to our discipleship. We learn by watching and listening and observing the choices of others as they love God and love their neighbors in their lives. We see it now and in the past. It's why the biblical narratives are so important to us. How are we to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves? As I reflected on these verses, I thought about multiple stories in scripture that that illustrate this, that can be instructive for us, how we might learn to love God and love neighbor. So first, maybe two, two stories from scripture that'll be familiar about what loving God can look like. Think about da- uh, young David, shepherd boy, called to take some food to his older brothers who are fighting in the army. He crests the hill and looks down into the valley of Elah. And there he sees the army of Israel on one bank. And to his wonderment, they're trembling in fear because on the other bank of that valley, is a nine-foot-tall giant with sword and armor and attitude to match. Eugene Peterson says that David has a God-dominated imagination. And so that while David saw exactly what everybody else saw, he saw it in relationship to God, this giant, while the others saw the giant in relationship to themselves. And therefore, he could boldly approach boldly proclaim who his God is and fight this battle. But the reality is David had learned to hear God's voice when he was working in the pastures as a shepherd. 
training himself in the silence and in the quiet to hear God's voice, to trust in him, so that when he approaches the chaos, he still is attuned to hear God's voice, to have this God-dominated perspective. But if we move from the battlefield of the Valley of Elah uh, to the battlefield and the halls of power in Babylon, we go from a young shepherd boy to an 80-year-old counselor to a king, Daniel, who at this point is serving his fifth king, I believe, has once again been shown tremendous favor, risen to tremendous power, and tremendous jealousy has followed him. The king is about to give total authority over everything to Daniel. The other counselors have sought to find some type of fault in Daniel there in Daniel chapter 6, and they give up. They can't find anything. So they choose to create. They convince the king to sign an ordinance that no one for the next 30 days is to worship anything other than the king, not to pray to any other god, but to the king. So what does Daniel do? What does loving God look like in this situation, in this particular battlefield? Daniel doesn't try to politic. He doesn't try to talk himself out of the situation. He doesn't try to buy his way out of the situation. He doesn't justify his self-importance to God by choosing to break this one little thing for 30 days because of how necessary he is for God's purposes. No, we read in verse 10, Daniel knew the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He does what he's always done. He talks to his God. He listens to his God. He faithfully prays to his God, loves his God in the midst of total danger to himself. He knows with his windows wide open, they're going to see, and he'll be cast into the den of lions. But again, he's practiced faithfulness by loving his God his whole life. So when given this opportunity, he does so again. He's developed habits of faithfulness to be a daily practice of these spiritual habits and disciplines. So many of my sins have been as a result of a me-dominated perspective or an others-dominated perspective. What will they think of me? It takes daily practice to train in ourselves a God-dominated perspective that we might choose obedience. I'm telling you that no matter how costly in the moment, you will never regret obedience. You'll never regret not sinning, no matter how hard it is. But what about loving our neighbor? Well, again, let's go back to another kingly court, court of a Persian king, the young Queen Esther, who has been named as a queen and has been alerted to a plot to eliminate all the Jews by her cousin Mordecai. This plot by Haman, and Mordecai's encouraged her to take heart, to be courageous, to go into the, into the king's throne room and ask for his help. Esther's fearful. She knows what it is to love her neighbor, to love her people, but she also knows there's tremendous cost to herself. Will the king extend the scepter or will he put her to death and grab another king, a queen off the assembly line that he has? She counts the cost. Um, she puts her people before herself. 
And she goes in and she asks for the king's favor and, and he grants it. A courageous choice in the midst of doubt and uncertainty. Tremendous courage to love her neighbors above herself. Or we go into the wilderness of Ziph. 1 Samuel 23. Here we have David, he of the God-dominated perspective, fearful, despairing in the moment. On the run yet again, Saul trying to put him to death yet again. Jonathan, aware of his good friend, struggling, travels to him. It reads here, David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and strengthened his hand in God. He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. The actual translation of strengthening someone's hand in God is to put their hand in God's hand. It's a beautiful imagery, and how do you do that? What does that look like? First of all, it's your presence. Jonathan went to be with David. Secondly, it's repeating the promises of God to that person. Those are the two ways that we can strengthen someone's hand in God's hand. The reality is sometimes our feelings, sometimes our fears just dominate us. It's said the best pilots are those who learn to, dry, or to, learn to fly by using their gauges and their instruments rather than what they can see or feel. And sometimes we need a friend to love us and to remind us that even though our feelings are real, they're not always reality. That we need to learn to trust God's promises as those gauges. In the midst of the fog, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the turbulence, we can trust what's certain. God's promises, because he's an unchanging God who loves us with an unchanging love. So we see here fellow Christians, and I, and I could go to so many other places, and you all could as well, but time and again we see this. We see fellow Christians, fellow disciples, showing us how to love God and love neighbor. But even as amazing as these saints are, as amazing as these examples are, there's something um, a little bit frightening here. There's a hard truth lurking behind even the grandest example. And it's this. If this is the greatest commandment, it also represents the greatest transgression. And I'm telling you, even Daniel, even Esther, even David, even Jonathan didn't love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, and all their mind. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves all the time. And neither do we. Sad reality is that we never keep it all the way or all the time because we can't. To love with some or even most of our heart, mind, and strength is not enough. To love some or even most of our neighbors is close, but never enough. We can't do it ourselves. And perhaps that's what's at the root of the fear and the insecurity and the despair of the Pharisees. They've tried to accommodate all this by cataloging the law into 613 separate laws, things to do, things to not do. We find them emphasizing, you know, Jesus calls them out for emphasizing tithing the dill and the cumin over, you know, justice and mercy and faithfulness. They try to control what they can control because they realize they cannot do it on their own. So where, where is our hope? 
what can we do when we actually do recognize that we can't do this in our own strength? Well, our only hope is in the one who has done it. At the heart of the gospel is the phrase, God so loved the world he gave. He gave us his son so that his son could perfectly keep the law where we could not. Because he perfectly kept the greatest commandment in his life and in his death, we need not live in fear about our ability to perfectly keep the commands. That is the beauty of our union with Christ. His perfect obedience becomes ours for all time. We can only do this as we enter by faith in Christ. It's by being baptized into his death and resurrection that we are saved and secured. Our hearts are conformed more and more to his, and our love for him and others grow as a result of this spirit-filled, spirit-fueled obedience. Standing in the temple amidst the sacrifices leading up to Passover, Jesus is teaching that nothing is more important than a heart posture of loving God and neighbor. Our sacrifices, whatever they may be, minus an obedient heart, minus a love for God and neighbor, are irrelevant. It's an internal issue, not a ceremonial or ritual one. And the Pharisees did not get this. It's when we forget this ourselves and we begin to trust in ourselves that we begin to behave differently. Instead of looking to him and loving him as father, depending upon him and praying in dependence and trust as his children, we instead offer the perfunctory prayers and behaviors of religious people. Religious people who live in fear with an attitude that depends on hopefully having done enough to earn his favor, rather than acting in confidence of being his child and running to him in desperate dependence, knowing that he loves us regardless. It's in knowing God's character that we come to love him and trust him, that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do and act as he says he will, that he can be trusted to love us so that we can in turn love others. 1 John 4, 19 20 through 21 reads, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John gets it. The absolute necessity of recognizing God's love for us in Christ, of understanding what Christ has done, is what first allows us to love him and in turn to love others. So what does this mean practically for all of us? Not to overstate, but it means everything. Again, this is the center of scripture. Everything hangs upon it, as Jesus says. It ought to be our guide in everything. Consider the Pharisees. Again, they were concerned for their possessions, their reputation, their position, their power. When we first love God and love our neighbor, though, our perspective on all those things ought to change. It should impact all of our relationships, impact our generosity, our ability to forgive. It should impact our tendency to keep score 
records of wrong, how we talk about others, how we disagree, how we choose to spend our time. It should guide us in how we think about the will of God. I was talking this summer with Toby about the future and was reminded of one of my last lessons in seminary the night before our commencement. One of the professors gave a talk at a banquet and I don't remember anything else other than this one illustration he gave, but he equated the will of God in this way. He said the will of God, we tend to think of it as a tightrope, that this long, narrow rope that we are in danger of constantly falling off if we make a wrong step one way or the other. And he said that's not true at all. The will of God is a vast prairie. We've got all kinds of room to run to and fro and to make choices, choices that we're excited and passionate about, but as long as they honor and glorify him. I think this is absolutely true, and it's really a whole different sermon, but the reality is the Bible doesn't tell you if you're a student what major to declare. It doesn't tell you what church to join, which job to take, where to live, whether to get married, who to marry. But it does tell you the absolute center of your life should be loving God and loving neighbor, just like Jesus. And all these other decisions should be filtered through that grid. God's will is not a list of decisions for your life, but it is a way of life. You've got a vast prairie of choices, any number of jobs to take, any number of neighborhoods to live in, any number of churches to attend, any number of people to marry, just one at a time. You're free to make any number of choices on that front, but you're not free to put anything else above God before him in any way. When you do make the choice, you have to ask, will this job allow me to love God and love neighbor? Will this church encourage me to love God and love neighbor? Will this spouse help me to love God and my neighbor more? It ought to apply to everything. All of our choices, all of our relationships, you're either learning to love God more or you're not. In turn, you're learning to love people rather than leveraging them for your own good, your own purposes. Now, some of you might be thinking, <clears throat> I've, I've not really loved God for a long time. I'm not sure when I really did love God. I've not known his love for a long time. I feel like I've been walking miles and miles away from him for quite some time. I've been living in this sin for so long. I feel like I have so much work to do to get right, to get to this place where I feel like I can even approach him for forgiveness, where he would actually want to forgive me. If you hear nothing else, today please hear this because of what jesus has done for you for every one of you out of love for god and love for neighbor you are forgiven and you are secured for all time in christ you don't need a new resume you get his 
You don't have to make it right. He's already done that. You don't need to backtrack 100 miles to get back to him. Turn around. He's right there. Because of what Jesus has done, we can know the Father's love and drink deeply out of the overflow so that we might pour ourselves out to neighbors ourselves. It's the gift of our union with Christ. That which is Christ's by right becomes ours by grace. That which is Christ's naturally becomes ours by adoption. All those benefits of his perfect obedience become ours in Christ. Because he perfectly loved God and neighbor, we don't have to do that to be saved. We get to do that. We don't have to because he's done it, but we get to. And the most amazing thing is we begin to want to. In joyful gratitude as a result of his saving love. This isn't a do more, be better passage. I don't want you to hear that. He has done it. Because we have a Savior who has united himself to us, we don't have to perfectly keep the commandments. We get to pursue holiness out of a love for him. We get to pursue joyful obedience that we're called to, not to save ourselves, but out of gratitude and thanks for what he has done for him. So what is the big takeaway? The long, sad story of human history is of our endless quest to find something other than God to satisfy our deepest longings. Conquest, power, material possession, sexual freedom, even religion and law-keeping, we will latch on to anything that leaves us feeling like we are in control. But you were made for God, to know him, enjoy him, revere him, trust him, draw strength from him, to love him. The heart of Christianity, as John Bunyan writes, to live upon God, to love him above all else, to satisfy our deepest longings in him. As Christ's redeemed ones, we are united to him. Nothing can change this union. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can disrupt our union with Christ. We could pray all day today or we could sin all day today and nothing would change our union. Nothing would make him love us less or love him more. Make him love us less or love us more. However, our experience of that union is impacted by those very hatreds. Our experience of that union can be disrupted. Don't confuse one for the other. The union never changes. Our experience of that union can change and does change day to day. But we can strengthen our experience of that union, our experience of those benefits by how we love Jesus, how we follow him. We're called by Jesus to follow his example here. Love God, love neighbor. We may not be called to face a giant, to take a tremendous risk that puts our very life in someone else's hands. But we can all be practicing faithfulness in the day-to-day. Listening like David in the fields, praying daily like Daniel, 
learning to hear his voice in the quiet so that in the moment of chaos, we still can hear it and trust in it. In turn, we can expect to be motivated to sacrificially love our brothers and sisters like Esther and pursue our friends at personal cost like Jonathan and selfishly love them by putting their hands in God's hands that they might know his love. Our obedience is not to gain the Lord's favor. We have it. We're always and ever in Christ. But we are called to love God and love neighbor. As we love God by reading his word, studying his word, sitting under the preaching of his word and talking to him, as we love neighbors by repenting, by seeking first his kingdom and righteousness, by obeying his commands, then we get to know his character and trust him as father and find our deepest longings fulfilled in him. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are to you for Jesus, for his perfect obedience, that he loved you and that he loved us all the way to the cross. We thank you for our union with him, the benefits that we have received as a result. Father, may we know the certainty of your love, the unshakable nature of your character more and more each day, that we might know your voice and trust it in the quiet, that we might hear it in the chaos. May we never forget our status as your children. Help us to be a church that puts one another's hands in God's hand as together we love you and love one another. Pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.